Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. All right, welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and also sometimes about how things have been falling apart for a while now. And today we're going to talk about how things were also bad in falling apart in the 2000s, which are a profoundly cursed time period. And specifically, we're going to talk about, I think, a part of the anti-war movement that does not get much attention um, which is the port militarization resistance that happened sort of 2006-2007. And with us today to talk about this is two people who were part of this movement. Uh, we have Juliana Neuhauser, hello. Hello. And Brendan Maslaskas Dunn. Yeah, both of whom were uh, organizers and activists while this was going on. Yeah, and uh, th- thank, you. thank you both for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, yeah, as, as I was saying a bit in the intro, I think that this is a part of the anti-war movement that is not very well known. I think I think a lot of people know about the initial stuff that happened in 2003 and people might know about some of the stuff that was happening against the war in Afghanistan like right when it started. But I don't think most people know that it like, you know, even after 2003 sort of doesn't work that it continues and that it continues sort of in forms that are that are very interesting and and I, so I, I guess I want you to 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 start out I want to ask how we sort of got from the early part of the anti-war movement into this and how you two got involved I would say that um, there's this narrative about the movement against the war in Iraq that there is the largest protests in human history at least at that point I don't know if it's still true against the invasion and then it didn't work and everyone kind of went home. 
and ended there. And to a certain extent, that's true. But like you said, the people that didn't go home went in interesting directions. And um, so at the time, there were... Direct action was not as acceptable as it is now. The protest movement was largely dominated either by um, big liberal coalitions or PSL front groups that were basically indistinguishable in what they actually did, which was basically (laughs) nothing. And in the best of cases, and in the worst of cases, counterinsurgency. Um, But then there were small groups of people that, that when we saw that it didn't work and we saw that these giant peaceful marches from one part of town to another um, or voting for John Kerry or whatever didn't work, that we started to look for other options. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I I got involved, um, you know, I'd say with the anti-war movement, I, that idea of how, how war is unjust was uh, really taught to me from a very young age. I mean, my parents were, you know, children of the 60s, and they had family members fighting in Vietnam and, um, you know, friends dying in Vietnam uh, and were against the protests back then. So I grew up hearing these stories and, of course, stories from uh, family members, particularly one of my grandfathers, both of them who were veterans in World War II, one of them was a Marine in the, you know, in the Pacific theater and still into his seventies, eighties and nineties until his final days was just dealing with horrific PTSD and had always taught me from a young age, never to get involved. So I, you know, and, and I remember when, when the very clearly, um, you know, I'm sure it's on everyone's minds now when, when the invasion of Afghanistan started when the invasion of Iraq started, I was at that, that massive demonstration in Washington, D.C. that Juliana just mentioned. And, you know, I, I ended up, you know, I'm from Utica, New York. I went to a, a rural high school uh, just outside of, uh, of Utica, you know, Rust Belt, uh, generally speaking, impoverished and also very conservative area of New York. And, you know, I had the recruiters bothering me, military recruiters uh, in high school, uh, recruiting my friends and they were just everywhere in the hallways. Uh, So it was very present um, with me when I was younger. I moved out to Olympia, Washington, 2006. And that's when uh, a new student activist group, Students for Democratic Society was launched. That's how Juliana and I first met. We were both in separate chapters of that new organization in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, the port protests started just uh, just a few months after I moved out there in in Olympia in 2006. So wait, to, to, to clarify this for a second, because I've, I've never quite been clear on this history. So there was a second SD, uh, like Students for Democratic Society, that was like yeah. unrelated to the first one. Yeah, okay. it was that, that... reborn briefly um, at the end of the Bush administration. That, that explains a lot of and, things that <laughs> were yeah. otherwise very baffling. <laughs> we're not that old. Yeah, we were definitely in the in the second, uh, the, you know, the rebirth of it. Um, so, you know, I think it it took on some things in spirit, um, you know, but also was, I'd say, different in many ways. And, and it was very active. To me, at least, it was very exciting to be a, a member of that, the new SDS because they're 
over a dozen chapters in the Pacific Northwest, and it was a great way to connect with young activists all over the U.S. So SDS is emerging in this time period. One of the other things I was interested about is something something you were talking about in in, in, the, in the early part of this, which has to do with the the, the way that these giant both the sort of answer coalition PSL Frank group, and I guess the ISO was still around back then, uh, coalitions work versus how like anything else worked. I'm interested. So, so was was SDS sort of like consciously set up in 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 opposition to those groups? I don't think it was conscious, but it, there was just like I mean, these days, I mean, like there's a lot of controversy around PSL with like anarchist versus tanky politics. Mm-hmm. None of that mattered at that time. Like, none of that mattered. The only thing that mattered was that answer, which was the PSL front group, was completely fucking useless. Like, they <laughs> completely indistinguishable from any peace police, um, liberal, democratic front group. There was literally no difference, just in terms of their aesthetics, maybe. Like, is there a donkey or a hammer and sickle on something? That's the only <laughs> difference we saw. So I don't, I don't think there was... It wasn't... There wasn't, like, a conscious like political opposition to it it was just like they're not doing anything Mm -hmm. and and so we had to look in another direction actually you know it's hard to keep track of the alphabet soup of authoritarian (laughs) communist groups at times but this was actually answer for those who don't recall it was a front group for the workers world party the wwp which yeah i mean it's it's hard to keep track right (laughs) yeah it's the same thing like I think so. So okay. So for people who are sort of unaware of this, there's a network of connected but sometimes feuding like weird Stalinist cults that kind of re- that kind of like they they hold on through the, like the the eighties and nineties and they start sort of rebuilding again around the anti-war movements in that period. That that's the PSL, that's WWP, that's Answer. Like and and, and I, th- I think that like most like modern anti-war groups are also still these people, which is incredibly depressing something i want to talk a bit about at, at, towards the end of this but yeah just for people who have not spent <laughs> like the last half decade in the in the trenches of extremely weird uh anti-war politics so yeah so so i think we should get into how the sort of the, the first action starts in olympia yeah, so, and there were actually a couple actions that happened um, in the year preceding that, I, you know, before I moved out to Olympia in 2006. Mm-hmm. It was not yet under the banner of PMR, Port Militarization Resistance. That was a name that was officially coined in, uh, you know, in, in May and June of 2006. And so just to give you an idea, uh, Olympia, it's it's a college town, right? The Evergreen State College is there. It's also the capital of Washington State, so you have that going on. It's also a military town. It's a little over 20 miles south of what we called Fort Lewis. It's now called JBLM, JBLM, or Joint Base Lewis-McChord. It's an Army and Air Force base. Now it's one base. Um, so you had all these, you know, different kind of elements uh, in, you know, in tandem in, in that town. And the public port, uh, the Port of Olympia, is one of about 70 or so public ports in the state of Washington, some of which are, I mean, they're used for all kinds of things, you know, uh, for our commercial, private industry, but also the military and the U.S. government. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I heard from someone, I don't even remember who, 
that the military was sending a ship to the port of Olympia in late May of 2006. And this happened for 10 or so days. And it was just kind of a, a, a natural instinct for a whole bunch of us to go down to the port of Olympia. It was, it was the war machine in our backyard. And the idea was to just block the vehicles. Uh, it started out with just like less than 10 people, number of folks getting arrested. And that very rapidly culminated into larger protests every single day, uh, an act of blockades. People, uh, those of us like Juliana, myself, and other folks using civil disobedience or what we preferred to call civil resistance to try and stop or at the very least slow down these striker vehicles. And to give folks an idea of what a striker vehicle is, you can look it up online, but it's kind of halfway between... Um, you know, a, a tank in a Humvee, it doesn't have the slats, you know, that a tank would have. Uh, it's, you know, and they were being used in both Iraq and Afghanistan for, for raids of residential areas. They were really on the front lines of, of the war in, in both those countries. And that's what we were trying to stop. I only got involved later um, because I wasn't living in Olympia at the time. Um, I was in another SDS chapter, um, but my roommate was from Olympia and he had been involved in that first round of protests in Olympia before moving up to Bellingham. And so like hearing his story has got me very excited because it's like, finally someone's, someone's doing something like someone's, they're not just like, it's like everything else was just so liberal. Like whether it was marching from one place to another or writing to your Congress people or occupying their office, it was like asking someone else to do something, which you knew from the beginning they were never going to do. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, this was finally someone was like actually getting into it. Um, I think the first one of the things that happened here was that um, they started to avoid um, that there's it was kind of a geographical thing that I think. Um, for people who either don't know Washington or because they're normal people don't know like the port areas of these cities very well. Cause it's like, like, unless you're a longshoreman, like why are you, would you go down to like the port of Tacoma? Yeah. Like, there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah. No. <for> <laughs> um, but uh, they kept moving it around because um, Olympia is also not very big. And um, so it's, there's really only two roads into the port, which is very small. And so it was, it's very easy to block it. Um, And so then I think the first time that I got involved um, was in 2007 um, when they had moved it because they kept moving it around to try and switch things up. Wait, they're they're Um, moving the ship around? Is is that they're moving, what, no, it's like each time Sorry. they had to make a military shipment, they would, um, you know, it's like, like once the ship was in the port, they would just have to go through with it. Mm, okay. But then, um, you know, it's like every, every six months or so, they had to make another military shipment and they would change the port usually each time um, to try and let, to, basically to avoid us. It doesn't seem like this is like normal practice. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
the first time I had gone down was in um, Tacoma, which is a much, much, much more industrialized port than Olympia. It's, you know, it's like a big port, like a more normal port, I guess. And that one was honestly pretty crazy um, because you're just trapped in this giant industrial maze, basically at the mercy of the riot cops. The best success we had was definitely at the Port of Olympia. Um, I think in the in 2007, in Olympia was definitely, I guess, like the glory moment, <laughs> which was um, when people were able to on and off, like actually hold the port and control its entrances wow. and exits. Yeah, and I want to, you know, just emphasize that like the, the one the the military changing their approach right to avoid us so jumping from port to port with these different shipments they actually went so far because we were so successful as a movement in the pacific northwest uh to ship striker vehicles by rail out of the pacific northwest uh and even going so far as to uh, ports in texas um wow. but you know one one thing that we did is that we built up contacts with other activists, with longshore workers all up and down the West Coast in California. There are other activists we are connected uh, with in Texas, Hawaii, New Jersey, and New York. There is a desire in the anti-war movement. Uh, and, and, you know, in some extent, maybe it's like, it, it was small, but some folks in the labor movement, especially in Oakland, where the ILWU, the you yep. know Longshore Workers Union, is a lot more militant than say in a place like Olympia. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, people wanted to replicate this model because, as Juliana said, we were successful in 2007. We shut down the port of Olympia for a total of it was essentially two days. They were not they're not shipping anything in or out. Uh, we set up blockades. We we're willing to throw down with the police in the street. And one of the things that was cool about that blockade is that um, one of the there's two entrances, like I said, and one was completely blockaded. And then the other one, um, we had like a moving, I don't really even know what it was, but something with wheels that we could move in and out um, to open it up. And so then we could allow like civilian cargo to move in and out, but then like we wheel it back in place um, to block military shipments. So were you, were you able to actually like stop them from like while in, in, in that one in Tacoma, were you able to actually like stop them from moving this off altogether or did you eventually get cleared up no. by the police and they moved it? It would eventually get cleared out by the police. It's like we were never able to it's like we were we we held it for two days. The those protests um took place over a series of two weeks or more or less. Um we were only able to fully hold it for two days before eventually they would clear us out. But one of the things is that it, this does, it did create problems for the army um, because when you work with a port, you know, it's like you've got like a certain time frame that you've contracted with the port to do whatever it is you're going to do. And it's not too happy if you take longer than you said you would or. Yeah. Yeah. And it the other thing I want to add is, you know, I think the other really important element with this whole movement going on is the Pacific Northwest was um, is specifically Western Washington, where the two of us were living. It was it was, uh, you know, the center in in a sense, it was the heart of the anti-war movement in the country 
at that time. One, because of this militant direct action that we were, you know, we were uh, building up in the streets and trying to throw a wrench in the gears of the war machine to, to at the very least slow it down, which in, in some ways we did, but you know, we were up against so much. But the other added element, of course, is the GI resistance and the soldiers who are resisting. Ivaw, also known as Iraq Veterans Against the War, was very active there. They set up a GI coffee house across, you know, literally across the, the street, uh, you know, the, uh, the gates for one of the entrances for Fort Lewis. Um, there are a whole bunch of soldiers that were going AWOL. We had friends who were active duty soldiers who had fought in, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan that were AWOL and they were hiding you know, refusing to go back into wow. these striker brigades that joined us in port militarization resistance. Uh, there were a whole, you know, long list of soldiers that were very publicly saying, you know, I'm refusing to fight in Iraq or Afghanistan for, you know, various reasons. And so we are very much connected with this movement too. And and I think the higher ups in the military, they're they're hyper aware of that. They studied us very well, um, you know, to the point of actually you know, spying on us. So that's like a whole other element of the story, too. Hey, guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to, like, choose a more challenging route than just, like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been, like, easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and, like, so simple? And what else was it going to—like, that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. 
one of the things that I've heard from talking to other people who were involved in this was that, like, while, like, during these protests, like, the level of police militarization just, like, skyrocketed. And, like, I, I remember, I was talking to a about this, it was, like, you know, if, if you go back and look at, like, old System of a Down videos, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have these things, yeah, and you'll see these, you see these riot police, and, like, you look at them, and it's, like, these people, they look so much less armored than, like, the people that we have now. And one of the things that I, I thought was interesting about this was that, like, th- this is, I think, one of the points where you start getting the modern riot police showing up that are just, like, you know, completely encased in, like, armor. And, yeah, I want to talk about just, like, the police response to this because I think that's that's another thing. I think I think there's, another, there's, there's a kind of a tendency to sort of project back what the police look like in 2021 just onto the whole history of police. And I think it's, like, it's 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 gotten worse even in the last 20 years. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I live downtown in Olympia and probably just like a six minute walk away from the port of Olympia. Uh, and, and also very conveniently just a few blocks away from the police station. So, so lucky us. So we actually saw, you know, we could see from the front of down on the road, down on the sidewalk from the front of our house, uh, some of the military shipments going by. And, and we, we, we did see that absolutely, and at at times it was it was terrifying. I mean, I lived in an activist house we jokingly called HQ because that's just you know where it, because of its proximity to the port, that's where a number of us were having meetings, uh, you know, around these protests early on in two thousand six, and um, yeah, I mean, we like they look like RoboCop, and it's something yeah. I had, I you know, I hadn't. Like I had been to like mass marches and demonstrations, like the RNC protests and DNC protests in Boston, New York, and like in Washington, DC. Uh, and so I would see these like riot cops, but they were, I mean, ubiquitous in these port protests. It was like a whole army of them that was sent out. I mean, when Juliana, Juliana said that things got kind of crazy at the Port of Tacoma protests, I mean, there was like a police riot. You know, like the cops went absolutely nuts. They're shooting people with tear gas and and pepper balls and and brutalizing people. I had never before witnessed anything like that. And it got to the point in, you know, in Olympia where we we kind of knew early on that we were being traced by the police uh, to the extent where, you know, one friend of ours was followed from our house to the bus station to take a bus to school by the police and then was stopped and essentially assaulted by them uh, on the street. And we had another uh, fellow activist and, uh, you know, roommate of mine who was going out to driving out with a few friends, uh, a few fellow activists from Olympia to Aberdeen, about an hour's drive. So Aberdeen, there's a Port of Grays Harbor there, pretty conservative, small town. It's where Kurt Cobain is from. Home of the famous uh, Kurt Cobain themed McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. They served billions and, and billions served in that one McDonald's and Kurt Cobain's McDonald's. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, they were, they were following, they had orders, you know, the Washington state patrol to, um, you know, pull over uh, a car full, full of known anarchists. There was alert gone out <laughs> to all the police departments. They pulled them, they pulled him over. They made him walk the line. He was hadn't, you know, wasn't drinking, had no drugs, like nothing in his system. But they, he was driving under like one mile per hour under the speed limit. 
they arrested him for D, uh, DWI, you know, eventually fought the charges, sued them, uh, and, you know, won a big settlement out of all that. But that's just one example of many yeah. of the lengths that the police would go to. Uh, it was pretty severe. Even there's a, a house of a bunch of anarchists, younger anarchists, uh, called uh, Pitch Pipe Info Shop in Tacoma. And that was also a big target. The police were swarming around them all the time. They had like cameras set up like specifically just outside the info shop. Like there weren't ca- surveillance cameras there before, but then there's like, oh, we'll just conveniently put them on this one specific street corner. Yeah, I think like it's, that was one of the things I was reading about this is you have that stuff. And then also, I think one of the scariest parts of this is that like army intelligence gets involved. And yeah, do you want to talk about uh, the man named quote unquote John Jacob, who was in fact not that? Yeah, so. Uh, you know, I'm curious what what memories you have of our our good dear friend John Jacob Giuliano. I don't think I ever actually knew him in person, but he was the um, the moderator of the listserv, wasn't he? Yes, and he was one of the moderators of our listserv. Now that I look back on it, I'm like the the Port Militarization Resistance listserv was always just like this dramatic shit show, and it's like <laughs> looking back on it, I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> moderated by a, a cop that did nothing did absolutely nothing to like establish order or huh I wonder if that was on purpose yeah so I think there's definitely some things that happen like you know looking back uh, from our vantage point today it's like okay things make a little more sense at the time though I mean we're in this movement right and so that means like meeting people where they're at we would find all kinds of people that would like want to join the movement. Like I, like I said earlier, like active duty soldiers that were joining. So I met this guy named John Jacob and uh, he sent an email out to me. I was one of the contacts for the Olympia SDS group. And it's like, Hey, you know, there's kind of like a parent organization that some old, like elder activists are in uh, to kind of mentor us called movement for a democratic society. It's very small, never really took off, but it's like, I'm interested in getting involved. Uh, we met up in public and he seemed like an all right guy. I mean, he was, um, you know, 40 ish, early forties. Uh, he told me he had like, you know, been in the military for years and he actually still worked at Fort Lewis. So he was always open about that, but it only went that far. He didn't ever tell us what he actually did there. And it wasn't abnormal for, you know, we had many folks that worked active duty, you know, on base and civilian civilian roles or, or soldiers, as I mentioned, that were in port militarization resistance. So he gets involved and he gets really involved with port militarization resistance. He goes to protests. He gets pretty close with this group of anarchists I mentioned who lived in Tacoma. Um, and he seemed like a really solid guy to, to most of us. Um, and, you know, things happen as, as we progress and, you know, as the military responded to our, uh, you know, how effective we were in the anti-war movement and the GI resistance movement by changing their tactics, uh, we noticed that, okay, when we first started the protests, um, we, we had the ability to catch the police by surprise by setting up, you know, a blockade here or having a surprise action there at this time or this port, et cetera, et cetera. And as time progressed, we found out that, you know, we were having these, making these decisions for tactics and our strategy, we thought that we're in private. And then 
for whatever reason, the police kind of knew about where we were going to be before we even showed up. And that I remember that like, clearly um, happening in 2007, the Port of Olympia. Yeah. In Tacoma, there was a lot of things like that. Like there was one time when there were like some people who um, had a meeting in a closed room with like all their, they had taken like the batteries out of their cell phones. They had simply written on the whiteboard the time and place they were going to have their next meeting, which is going to be in a diner near the port. And so that way, if like, if for any reason the room was bugged, it wouldn't be caught up because it was just written on a board. And then it was like a small meeting too. So it's like there wouldn't. And then when they got to that diner, there was like full of cops and like clearly waiting for them. Like at that point, it's like it was very clear there was some some level of infiltration involved. Yeah. And I think we from early on, like, you know, we we knew our history. I mean, you know, one of our, yeah. our fellow activists in PMR and, and a friend of ours, Peter Bomer, is a professor at the Evergreen State College. He was in the original SDS back in the 60s. And, you know, he was essentially a, a political prisoner for a couple of years in both Massachusetts and California. Um, I mean, the feds essentially tried to assassinate him um, back in, uh, in the 70s when he was active in the anti-war movement in San Diego. Like, we knew you know, former Black Panthers, and we read our history. So we knew about the history of COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program of the 60s and 70s, and the war on the anti-war and civil rights and Black power, American Indian movements, etc. So we knew, you know, just intuitively early on. uh, But there was one thing that happened in particular, which prompted some of us to file for a public records request with the city of Olympia. And uh, another activist walking down the street in Olympia I'm a member of the Wobblies Industrial Workers of the World Union. And we had like a one of those metal newspaper boxes downtown and it was locked to a pole, um, you know, with a bike lock. And there are some city workers there with a pickup truck and they're cutting the lock to this what? newspaper box and they threw it in their pickup truck. And so our, you know, this friend of ours was there and was like, what, what the hell, what are you doing? What's going on? And one of the workers just kind of shrugged and was like, I don't know. The police told us to do this and they drove off. Like they stole, you know, our, or essentially like our union property or whatever. Um, so we had, a, you know, our, our lawyer friend, Larry Hildes and the National Lawyers Guild, you know, call and kind of threaten the city. And, and then a number of us got together like, hey, you know, let's do like a public records request um, with the city of, of Olympia, freedom of information law. Right. And so we did. And the request was, you know, just requesting any all information the city had, um, any exchanges, communications by email, et cetera, um, between the police and like other agencies about anarchists, the IWW, Students for a Democratic Society. Um, and their initial search that the city clerk did yielded something like 30,000 responses. So she's like, okay, I got to narrow this down. And I, I don't know, I was working on the request at the time, and for some reason, like, I don't know, we're poor protests, we're near a military base, uh, communications between the army, not thinking anything. And so the initial responses, we actually got, um, you know, maybe 100, 130 or so different documents, just copies of emails, et cetera, that um, were little puzzle pieces for this massive puzzle, and it was just a few of them. Uh, and it was, you know, there was an email talking about 
our guy in the Navy going to a PMR meeting uh, to get some intel. Uh, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of things like that. There are a few emails in particular, um, and the email address was something like John, John J. Towery at, you know, army.us, whatever the email address was. So there's a crew of activists that got together, put their heads together, did some research quietly for a few months, and eventually found out by publicly accessible information like voter registration records and also finding out something about like a motorcycle club called like the, I don't know, like the Brown Butte Club or the Brown Butt Club or something. And and uh, like found out that this John Towery guy that was in this motorcycle club and had his, you know, was registered to vote outside of Tacoma in, in this town there. Uh, it was actually John Jacob. It was this guy that we thought was a fellow activist an anarchist, um, and, and a friend, you know, I thought he was a personal friend of mine. Turns out he was actually essentially an army intelligence officer working for something called a force protection unit at, uh, at joint face, uh, joint base Lewis McCord, and also working, um, with a whole list of different agencies and what turned out to be like a massive uh, surveillance network that was national in scope. This guy was sent by the army along with many others to infiltrate us, to spy on us, and to disrupt us. It was huge. Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. 
Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Yeah, and that, that's one of the things that I've always thought was really interesting about this. Like, so, like, I, I learned about poor militarization resistance basically because I was, like, poking around the history of, like, informants, and I ran into this, and I was like, what? Because, and then that was what I, what I thought, one of the things I thought was really interesting about this is that, like, like, I think th- this chapter of the anti-war movement is, e- even on the left, is, like, not very well known. But, like, the seriousness with which the army seems to have taken it is, like, is really remarkable. Yeah, I'm wondering what you two think about that. One thing we have to emphasize is, is that we were not a large group of people. Yeah. Like, um, the number of people who are actively involved in port militarization resistance at its peak was... At a, how many people do you think it was, Brandon? Well, it depends. I mean, I'd say there are probably, like, at its peak, maybe uh, probably 40 to 50 people that would, like, consistently show up to things. You know, maybe a, a slightly smaller, very core group. But we would have demonstrations with, like... And then, like... Yeah. 400 people, you know. Yeah, and like that would be like the max. Like there is it's like there are like the peaceful like kind of like support actions, you know, you'd get like a couple hundred people and then like for the stuff like where it's like the the first night that uh that the part of the entrance to the part of Olympia was occupied, it would be like yeah, like 40 to 50 people. Um, th- these were not, gr- these were not very large groups of people. Um, I feel like, and like I said, it's like one thing that we need to keep in mind was that um, the peace police were much stronger back then than they are now. Nowadays, like like as we saw last year, it's like people in the U.S. have learned to throw down, but that was not the case at the time. And so, this is a very very small group of people. Um, I think we accomplished a lot from with how small it was. Um, if it had been larger, it would have accomplished way more. Um, but even that small core of like forty to fifty people, with maybe expanding out to like a larger group of a couple hundred, had them that scared that they went that far to try and disrupt it yeah and and this is one of the things i've been thinking about a lot recently of this seems to be a very consistent thing which is that like the 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 two things that are guaranteed to like just have a hammer drop on you if you touch them is pipelines and ports and that, that was that was something you know i, I we, we've talked a lot on here about pipeline protests um but i, I was interested in what you two think about because yeah this this is like a very particular moment right now in which you're dealing with all these logistics chain failures and i was wondering if if you do think there's anything that we can learn from how your versions of the sort of 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 port demonstrations worked for potentially trying to leverage that in the future especially with like contract negotiations for like port workers in oakland coming up next year 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's this old saying in, in the IWW, direct action gets the goods, right? And I think it really boils down to that. It's building up, uh, you know, mass movements and, and social movements from below uh, that rely on direct action, that rely on civil resistance, civil disobedience. Um, yeah, and, and the pipeline protests that have been ongoing where indigenous people have been on the front lines of that uh, for many, many years now, I mean, the kind of repression and surveillance that we face uh, really pales in comparison to the kinds of, you know, surveillance and repression that folks were facing uh, at Standing Rock, for example. Um, you know, I think, uh, of, of course, one of the well, one of the main differences is, is that it was primarily the, the military, you know, with us, right, that was uh, surveilling us because this, this was very specifically, you know, a war issue and a military issue. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, like, I, I think there's a big question. like, what, what do we have to do that's, that's new? And to me, I say, you know, for both that kind of militant action, but also for the labor movement, it's like, What's not, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are things that have a tried and true track record of getting the goods. And that is, you know, these more disruptive kind of actions and, and, and movements. Um, and so one of them would be, you know, I guess my suggestion would be to like go back to the basics. And even like I would say now, you know, this, remember, this is at a time when like Facebook was around, right? Like, but, we weren't really using that for our organizing. We really relied on like face-to-face -face meetings, you know, phone calls and building up trust with people and building up our capacity to like take actions and make change. You know, I think I'm not saying throw out everything that, you know, that at least some of the good that social media has to offer, but like, I think going beyond that and, and going back to these older tactics and then for the labor movement, like the big thing is, you know, and it's just like a bigger question for for mainstream unions in particular, uh, I mean, they're, the, the whole idea of like union contracts is that workers also lose a lot. Yeah, they get some things, but uh, business owners and bosses have rights carved out in, in those contracts. Yeah. And with the longshore <clears throat> workers, I mean, the difficult thing with that, of course, is like there would be some symbolic strikes that, of course, like longshore workers have done and continue to do, you know, around like, the war in uh, Iraq historically supported Mumia Abu Jamal, Mayday, et cetera, uh, like in Oakland. Um, but they have some things for that written into their contracts. And, mm -hmm. you know, for all these other like unions, it's like, well, you know, we can't strike at all for, uh, for the next two years or next three years, whatever the life of the contract is. Like, I think it's a bigger question and challenge for the labor movement to move beyond that and not be put in this, straitjacket of of contracts like that yeah i think that that particular like the, the no the no strike clause part of contracts i think is an interesting thing because it, it i don't know there, there there's not i mean there, there there are some unions that will actually do stuff around fighting it but mostly people just sort of don't care and, and i think you wind up in a situation where it seems like you, you kind of have to plan your tactics around when contract negotiations are happening because otherwise you can't actually get people to do anything more than like a one day symbolic strike. Yeah. And, or, you know, the challenge is like, you know, we have this great American tradition that's not unique to the U S it's universal really. And, 
it's one that resonates with me breaking the law right and <laughs> and like we're you know we're like civil disobedience that is that what we are doing in the streets and blocking the ports we were breaking the law and we knew it and that's what the civil rights movement the black freedom movement did in in the 1960s uh but like we have recent examples of workers breaking the law in mass yep. like the west virginia teacher strikes that happened uh, a few years ago like Teachers in every single county in that state went on strike. They broke the law and, and they won something out of that. And I think that's what we really need to encourage people is this idea of breaking out of like the norm and, and breaking the laws, which, you know, the laws that are in place, which are not there to, you know, expand our freedom. They're there yeah. to contract it. Yeah. One of, one of my friends had a joke about, what was the exact line? It was, uh, it's it's only illegal if you get caught, and it only matters if you lose, which I think is a good way of thinking about uh, both yeah, breaking absolutely. the law and yeah, and <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and I think it's also like it's, it's worth mentioning that like the other side, the law doesn't matter to them at all. Like they just tear it up and like light it on fire constantly. So don't don't bind yourself if if you can if you can not get caught and not like go to prison for the rest of your life don't bind yourself by a bunch of like paper that the other side just doesn't care about yeah and that's an excellent point because that's the big thing you know with the army and law enforcement in general like surveillance of us they were in the police just their actions or brazen actions on the street like the riot police um they were just breaking the law all the time they absolutely have a deep visceral hatred of the bill of rights of civil rights and civil liberties. And so there were a number of, you know, court cases that sprung out of, um, you know, this movement, there was a case called Panagakis v. Tauri, uh, another Juliana Panagakis was another PMR member co-plaintiff in that case. And, you know, it was a, a case against the army that, you know, we, we waged and brought up to the ninth circuit court of appeals and, you know, eventually lost and and could have brought it to the Supreme Court, but didn't. But, you know, like the the other thing is like the violation of the Posse Comitatus Act. Uh, it was a whole other thing. You know, we don't have to get like so tied up into like the legalistic uh, thing. But like the point, your point is valid. Like they don't care about the laws that are already there. They'll, they'll just uh, intentionally break them, uh, break their own laws that they have set up. And, you know, they'll just get a slap on the wrist because that's really all that's all that happens to them i think i think i think that's a good note to end on uh break the law it's fake it's also bad um do, do you two have anything you want to plug other than that other than you know other encouraging people to break the law <laughs> do anarchism <laughs> <laughs> blockade your local port <laughs> yeah uh yeah i mean i i think it's you know, I, I guess just encourage people to do as, you know, it sounds like what, what you're doing by having us on the show. And like, there are some in our very recent history, um, you know, movements and wins that we all as activists today can still learn from. And I think part of that, um, you know, I don't want to call us elders because we're not that old, but like <laughs> a, one part of that is like, making sure like our movements are still like multi-generational and like we, we learn from each other. And also as, as Juliana and I did, like I mentioned earlier, like we learned 
from the movements of the past, SDS, the Black Panthers, uh, the Black Freedom Movement, et cetera. Um, but there's a lot that, you know, these, these struggles, I think, have to offer us today. All right. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you both for talk, coming on and talking with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, this this has been It Could Happen Here. Uh, find us at Happen Here Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and the rest of our stuff is at Cool Zone Media at the same somewhat accursed social media places. I don't know why I'm saying somewhat. They're just accursed. Yeah. See you next time, whenever that is. Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.